are um, in a series of pro- on the Proverbs, and um, if you're not careful in preaching or learning or reading about the Proverbs, uh, the Proverbs can kind of become a weapon of sort, of a moralistic kind of finger-wagging southerner. I'm a southerner, so kind of thing. It, the Proverbs can kind of wind up that way. As a weapon, you know, you can see uh, just immediately just, you know, the slugger craves, gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied, you know, or uh, a little sleep, a little slumber, and just uh, always giving it to people when you see any sort of thing. You know now, stop yelling, harsh words, stirs up wrath, but a gentle answer turns away anger, you know. They can become that. Uh, unless you remember, which we believe, three or four um, principles, foundational principles. Because the Proverbs, uh, in their nature, what they're like, are, are pithy and they're uh, short and they're addressing things uh, a little with hyperbole, uh, but they're also helping God's people live in His world. So, four words that I've been memorizing, this is how I've been thinking of them. I've been sharing with them this morning the four words that kind of help. If you'll, you'll handle the Proverbs rightly, if you can remember these four words that we've established. Kevin says it different ways. But this is kind of the words I think of it. First is awe. Just that uh, all the Proverbs, real wisdom from Proverbs 1-7 flows from, being the, from the fear of the Lord, from being in awe and connected to Him. So anything that you do in wisdom, it, only flow, it is only true wisdom when it is flowing from a connectedness and worship and dependence upon God. Secondly, just path. And that the Proverbs are... Um, are not always specific, and when you kind of when you if you want to go to the proverb and say, well, what about this and what about that? If, if it tells you to do this, then you're missing them. They're really trying to move you towards a path of obedience, a general path of obedience. As a matter of fact, there's two proverbs, uh, Proverbs 26:4 and 26:5. They say two different. One says, "Listen to a fool and his folly," and one says, "Speak to a fool." Right back to back. So it's kind of like, well, what's the point? Well, the point is there's a path in the middle of how to speak to a fool uh, or someone. In that way, the other word is flourish, and um, that's, I have found that to be so important, that God really does want his people to flourish and thrive in the world that he's designed. And so the Proverbs are a way to help. This is what my world is like. This is what it's designed to be, and the Proverbs help us with that. And then the other word is trust, and we've talked about the, the trust in the Lord and lean not on your understanding. One of the ways to the Proverbs is really calling you to trust in what God says about his world and be skeptical of your own heart. Uh, be, be skeptical of your own heart and your own interpretation and lean upon him and his interpretation of the world and what it means to really function in it. So this morning we come to the theme, as we've been preaching through themes, because you can't really work through them um, uh, uh, in, in order. We've picked out themes from the Proverbs, is uh, justice and mercy. And um, the idea of justice and mercy, the Bible, those two words, you hear them together oftentimes. And, um, and justice and mercy is, uh, uh, the Bible seems to kind of move back and forth um, with these two words, with uh, describing what it means to really minister to the poor. So justice, and then sometimes it uses justice, sometimes it uses the word uh, service uh, or, or diakonia, which is rooted in di- di- deacon's ministry. We get our word deacon for mercy. So it, it uses interchangeably the idea of justice and mercy and service in order to really say what God is doing for the poor and his heart towards it. Okay, so when we say justice and mercy, don't think of them separate. Think of a holistically kind of God's posture towards it. And so you may remember one of the most famous passages of the Good Samaritan, right, uh, about who is your neighbor. And at the end, Jesus says it's the, the one who did well is the one who showed mercy. 
the one who gave mercy there is. But then sometimes in Isaiah, in different places, Leviticus, Jeremiah, you'll see where the sharing of food and shelter and other basic resources, um, that was called doing justice. So it's just kind of a holistic thought of justice and mercy. It's really God's, these interchangeable words throughout the Bible that God identifies in his posture towards the poor. What does it mean to do justice and mercy? Now, it's an overwhelming topic. It's a little bit of a, a, a buzz topic, I think, in many ways. And it's a hard subject. And so I do want to offer it to you this morning from the four-word foundation. If you don't remember these four words, kind of the foundation, and we look at the Proverbs about justice and mercy, um, you will forget uh, from the all aspect that, that, never, that you'll never uh, help the poor in a gospel way or have the proper motivation if you don't remember the all aspect. Um, you know, if you don't remember that the Proverbs around justice and mercy is trying to give us a pathway, you'll, you'll spend most of your time saying, well, what about this? And what about this person? Do I help them or not? You'll forget the idea of what the Proverbs is trying to move us towards a pathway of justice and mercy. Um, actually, the Bible says that it makes you happy. You've looked at your, some of your studies this week that... Um, that actually living and executing justice and mercy brings peace and thriving for God's people. You actually flourish when you do it and live in light of it. And then, um, and then the idea that you should be skeptical of your own heart uh, when it comes to justice uh, and mercy. And let's hear from God. I want to do that. Now, I'm going to pause right there, and I'm going to... I'm going to I hope I want to at least frame, uh, when I think about who we are and our own denomination and what we're made up for, I want to frame a few things uh, to help you and help us not be skeptical and think to trust the Lord. There are some things that kind of, when we talk about this topic, I think that need to be uh, framed and kind of created so that what I hope you can do is we look at this couple of verses in the Proverbs that you'll be able to dismiss some of the thoughts swimming you around this topic, and just hopefully today we can see God for who he is and his heart towards uh, the poor. That we could just he'd pull it back and we could just see that. All right, a couple of things. One, to create the space for you to hear uh, from the Lord. Um, it's clear that God's people had a hard time living justly and with mercy. It's clear because so many of the Proverbs do that. They were his people, and they were living in his world, and there's a numerous, numerous Proverbs helping them to not oppress and to be generous and to help others. So that's the fact that he's addressing it shows that it was a problem, and he wants them to flourish. So what we can conclude as well is that no matter what, it's a problem for us. All right? Why? Because we have the same hearts and the same struggles in just a different time and space than them. So, so we. Secondly, so remember that. First, there's also just this struggle within evangelicalism or has been around the, the idea of the social gospel, where it's about mercy and justice, and the proclamation gospel, which everything's around evangelism. You kind of have had these two camps kind of surface over the last few decades. And really, more of your mainline denominations have moved, and liberal leaning have moved towards social gospel issues, and they almost have left any proclamation of God's truth and the gospel and repent and believe. But just as so, uh, which would be a little bit more of our camp here, we've the proclamation, the gospel is that we're just about evangelism, 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 as if it was devoid of anything socially to help people. And the proclamation has moved. And so I want you to uh, be aware of that struggle. And, um, and I want you to know this, that evangelism and proclamation of God's word and mercy and justice are inseparable in the Bible. 
They go hand in hand. And then you say, well, wait, wait a minute, which one's more important, for someone to become a Christian and their soul be saved or for, their food, for them to have food? Well, we would say that it's more important for someone's soul, that, of course, that they would have eternity and be forgiven their sins. But we don't create, but we would think of it in this way, that it is yet, it is inseparable, meaning what always comes with that proclamation should be the justice and mercy and the physical. We don't create a dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical, because God's going to redeem a new earth and a new body and save souls. It's really the, the weightiness lies, we would say evangelism, in the sense, leans to be more important because it's an issue of eternal and temporal. So, of course, people's eternal needs are more important than their temporal needs. But what I hope we see from this and we learn in the scriptures is that they're inseparable. Those two things come together and that, that they ought to be um, the way we think about our faith. Our faith, right? Do works save us? Are we saved by works? No, we're saved by grace through faith. But like, like uh, Calvin said, or that, that faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but our, our faith is never alone. It's connected with works. And so a life that is a Christian uh, is transformed. So just feel that. I'm not, we're not uh, advocating. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to have, create a commune and share all our possessions and the social things. We're not, that's not where we're going, nor are we abandoning the proclamation of God's word. So dismiss that in your heart so that you can hear from God and see his heart for mercy and justice. And then also I'm going to ask us just to take off our, uh, I know this is a lot of setup, it's on purpose, um, but take off your political goggles that our culture seems to demand you put on. Take those off when it comes to this issue. And, um, you know, when it comes to the poor and impoverished, the conservatives seem to think that the main need is personal responsibility of those who are poor. And the liberal side seems to think that the main issue is, is this, the systems are corrupt. Right? We're going to rise above that with the gospel and Christianity and say this, is that we, yes, people are sinners, and they do need to, to, uh, to repent of their sins. But also, systems are put in place by those, sisters, by those sinners, and therefore systems are sinners, are sinful as well. And we need new systems, and we need, and we need uh, better systems, and we need better uh, we need people to deal with sin. So the system and the, if you will, the system and the people are sinners because they're all led by sinners. And so, listen, capitalism isn't the answer to the poor. Socialism isn't the answer to the poor. Uh, those, those, those systems that are trying to uh, address maybe injustices in some letter, they all have their faults. They all have some strengths, some more than the others. But we look to the king and his system who... If you were to study all those, I could show you biblically why all of them will never work according to the Bible. And yet some of them have elements of goodness to them. So dismiss all of those this morning. And let me put before you our King and our Father and his heart towards mercy and justice. Just let him, let him see what our Father King is life. And so, and then lastly... Um, don't, don't jump. The, the mistake is to jump to the, uh, to the spiritual. So we, We're all poor in spirit. We all need Jesus. We're, we do. We're going to land there. But oftentimes we jump so quick to that that we really don't realize that God is saying that the physical needs of the poor matter. So don't. Don't just move to that so quick. So when we're hearing these Proverbs from this morning, it is literally taking care of the marginalized and the poor and those um, that are central to that. Um, 
So that's the setup. We'll, we'll answer four questions really quickly. Who is important to God from our passages? How do we know they're important to him? Why are they important to God? And how should we respond? Let me pray. God, would you allow me and all of us, I've been so convicted, again, looking at your, your mercy and justice, and would you grant us, um, would you show us your heart? Show us who you are. Shine your light on us. And may we be encouraged. May we be convicted. May our minds be transformed. May our hearts be softened. And may you meet with us. Amen. So who is important to God? From our passages looking at it this morning, uh, I want to say everyone's important. <laughs> to God, you're important to him too. But there is this, this sense of the idea in the scriptures that there's a special concern that God seems to have for what we see here, the poor and the needy. You see there in Proverbs 13, 31, 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man, and then you see the needy. And then also in verses, for the, the 31 passage, you see uh, those who are destitute um, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So um, uh, who is important to God? And what we learn from these is that really the poor and the needy are the destitute, right? And so let me just give you the three categories. Most Christians have kind of summarized in the Bible and theologians, these are kind of the categories of the poor. Who are they and what are they? And so uh, there are those uh, who have had injustice and oppression and, uh, and had uh, unjust social conditions or treatment that keeps people in poverty. Uh, the main Hebrew word for the poor in the Old Testament means the wrongfully oppressed. And examples of the oppression include social system, systems weighted in favor of the powerful, high interest loans, unjustly low wages. I mean, it could be anything. Those things were going on in that time. So there's an oppression that is the poor that they can't get out from under, right? They're being exploited. That would be the poor. Second kind of category would be the circumstantial calamity of the poor, which refers to any kind of natural disaster or circumstances that bring or keep a person in poverty. And so you remember so many times, even you remember like the famous parable of the, uh, uh, of the um, prodigal son, right? I mean, he, uh, it tells us while the, the younger son was far away that a famine came to the land. That was natural calamity. And so he, they would have known all of a sudden he was in bad shape, but when the famine came, he got in worse shape. And many times what the scriptures are, scriptures are speaking to are those who don't have, if they're already oppressed or they're just poor, they can't handle anything outside the ordinary coming. And calamity puts them in positions that they are very, very needy and need relief. Uh, and then thirdly, just the category of just personal failure. And poverty can also be caused by one's own personal sins and failures. And... Um, and that's self-discipline. And we've just looked at the Proverbs of last week. Kevin preached on being a sluggard and laziness. And we looked at uh, what oftentimes it talked about it bringing poverty to you. Um, so, but those are the categories. And, and listen, I probably wrongly even the study this week. Oftentimes we think, well, that we will help everybody but the lazy people, those that aren't disciplined. Leviticus speaks to... In Leviticus, there's a couple of laws in Levitical law where the poor were helped and they were lazy, but they were then given instruments and seeds and something in order to kind of build them back up to figure out how to help them and develop, okay? So there is an idea of difference with the lazy, but the gospel and really our kindness and the grace of God, it, we all mess up, right? We're guilty. 
And so you can't splice out the lazy and say, I'll help everybody but the right. Because, and then here's what we also don't understand. I've read tons of books on this in the last two or three years. But just the, the complexity of how all three of those aspects can make someone. So if, you, if you're oppressed, then you don't feel like you want to work. What's the point? It won't help me. I mean, that could drive you to laziness, right? And then a calamity comes. I mean, don't draw so many conclusions. God's compassionate towards people who are lazy. And we just looked last week that all of us are in some vineyards of our life. So, um, that's it. And so, the other point maybe to say for us is don't, don't, and I understand this, and this is true, and I've used the quote, but don't say, you know, if you make so-and-so wages in America, you're in the top so-and-so percent of whatever in the world. And listen, I think I personally use that quote to make myself feel better. And it is some reality to it, the third world countries. I, have, I remember walking through Ethiopia when we were there for two weeks to get Xander and, and just my heart breaking. I'd purposely go out and be among the slums and, and, um, and think about the brokenness and the depth and the cycle that was there that, um, in that particular area where he, where he was from. But um, there are people within our own system that feel oppressed and marginalized. And although their minimum wage may be different in other places, that doesn't alleviate us from having the same in a different way around us. Okay, so don't use that quote. Just put that one to the side for a few years and say we have the poor and the oppressed among us as well. Okay? So who's important to God? He seems to identify uh, the poor and the needy and the destitute. And that was another word there. I won't get into it. But there you can see that the language of the idea is the idea of just the powerless and the oppressed and, and that. So, so how do we know they're important to God? How do we know? Well, you see, that's a, the second one there. We'll look at these. And I, I added Proverbs 19, which I think was in the studies this week. But notice this. How do we know it's important to God? Look, first is that he identifies with them. That's how important it is to him. He says, if you, look at that, whoever oppresses a person, you insult your maker. God's saying, if you oppress them, then you insult me. I take it personally. And who is generous and needy honors me. So it's like, if you honor them, you're honoring me. He identifies with them. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to God. So when you give, you're actually lending to God. You ever thought about that? Put that in your pipe and smoke it and figure it out. What does it mean that the all... All-sustaining, all-powerful God can, it needs to be lended to. But he is so identifying with it. And so we learned even this week that the surety of the loan that you give to the poor, he backs it. He says, I'm the banker that will bless you. Even if they can't, I bless you. They do it because I so identify them to him. Well, so he cares um, and identifies with them. That's how we know it's important with him, right? You only identify with people who are important to you. Now, this is funny, I know, but y'all remember, I grew up with your mama jokes. Y'all remember those? Your mama, your mama, although they're terrible, they're funny, I love them. Some of the young kids don't remember your mama jokes, right? But the way it went, you know, when I was in high school and growing up was this, is like, you know, you could, you know, they would say, hey man, you can do whatever you can say about, oh, tell my brother, but don't you talk about my mama, right? And it's like, those are fighting words. And uh, we had all these mama jokes and that, but it... There's some truth to that. What were young men saying? They're saying, I identify with that woman who nurtures me. And if you attack her, you attack me. Right? And we get that. Like, I mean, you say, you talk about Kentucky. Well, you kind of talk about my state. Or you talk about my school. Or you talk about my whatever. We identify with things. And the closer you get, how, what would you say about someone? You say, if you insult me, you, you, you insult them, you insult me. 
If you give to them, I'll repay you for that. You see how closely God identifies with the poor, those that are marginalized and without. That's how we can know it's important. That's what the verse is, is telling us. Secondly, we know it's important to him. Look, he, he actually, <coughs> which I forgot. Did Jesus himself identify with the poor? Of course he did. Matthew 25, then he will say to those in his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, this is Jesus speaking, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick in the prison, and you did not visit me. Now, what do you mean by this? It's like, if you've done it to the least of these, then that's me. That's why you've ignored those who are oppressed, and Jesus is saying, I identify with them. And it was a heaven or hell issue, in a sense. Not that you could earn it, but how did you know whether, whether he was the one who was a Christian was how they treated the poor. That's what Jesus was saying. So these things are inseparable, and they come with really, really heavy, heavy consequences and um, intensity from our Lord. Then notice in verse 20 and uh, verse 31 how we know it's important to him. He, command, he makes a command. He says, open your mouth for the mute or the silent. For those who can't speak, open your mouth. It is a command. Coaches, what do coaches command of their players? They command what's important. They only tell them to do things that are important for them to be in the game. What is he? This is a command. Sit under the weight of that for this morning that God's for your people as his people. He commands you to not be quiet when it comes for those who are defenseless or the oppressed, the poor. He actually says to speak up, open your mouth, defend them. So it's important to him because he makes commands about it. You only command things that are important. And then uh, other ways we know why is it important to him. It's been consistently a part of, his, of God's story and how he's related to his people from the beginning to the end. And we get that. It's like we get that from the passage. Well, notice he says, I'm the maker, right? I'm your maker. He's, I'm your creator. He's going back to creation, right? He, in the idea that you insult the one who for all of creation, this has been the story. And it begins that way. Was it not after the fall, right? You remember what God did to Adam and Eve? What did he do? Before he sent them back out, he covered them. He met their physical needs. There's mercy and justice. Not only are they going to forgive their sins, but he actually covers them and gives them what they need in that moment. They needed animal skin. In all the language all throughout the Bible, there was a challenge in, when God's people were coming back out of Babylon. Isaiah the prophet was dealing with them, and God's people were kind of recalibrating and starting to worship God and not the false gods. And, and, um, and so basically in Isaiah 58, which actually points to the futuristic church, even for us from about 56 on to the end of Isaiah, but as they're coming back from exile, God's people were worshiping him. They were practicing the Sabbath. They were morally turning to him in many ways. They were fasting. And yet listen what Isaiah but yet God says to them, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from him, your own flesh? He actually says, depart from me. Like, what do we do wrong? What do we do wrong? He says, you're ignoring the poor. 
I'm not impressed with your fasting and your worship. Zechariah, I mean, we could just trace that story all the way through. And as we mentioned, Jesus did it. So it's consistently been a part. How do we know it's important? It's a part of everything God says. It's so important. By the way, a number of the verses you looked at this week, and those of you who are in the Connect groups. By the way, if you're here visiting with us, our, our studies and Connect groups and life groups are going through Proverbs too. So uh, they're coming in having looked at justice and mercy this week. So that's why I refer to it. But right, we know it's important. Some of the Proverbs we looked at this week, that he watches the kings, and whether or not they're fair or not, whether he establishes them. He punishes and plunders people who aren't giving to the poor. He turns the ear away from those who don't listen to the poor. God says, and I'll turn my ear away from you. He commands you to speak, which we said. Uh, and then ministry to the poor is a crucial sign for salvation. So how do we know it's important to him? I think it's pretty evident that mercy and justice are important to God. So then why, why is it important? That's our third question. Then why, why are the poor and needy important to God? The first reason, and I'll just focus on the idea of the name that was used there, the maker. Right? He said, uh, you insult God and... The first reason implied by all the scriptures is God is just and merciful. So if there's any injustice going on, he, that, he has to address it. He always does. He cannot not address it because it's so true of who he is and his justice. That he is. But the other reason why it's so important to him is that we are, he, he says that maker, again, is the word he uses is because the people who are being done injustice to are his image bearers. And then remember one of the verses we looked at that God, God actually cares for the rich and the poor. And they're all, because why? Because they're both made in his image. There's impartiality, that people are people. Why? Because they have dignity and worth in the image of God. And so why are they important to him? Because the poor are being true. That's why murder's bad. It's for a number of reasons, but the primary reason is that you kill an image bearer, the crown of God's creation. And so why is it important to him for that reason? Let me offer one other reason implied, I think, being made in the image of God. In essence, right, remember that we... We, we worship a triune God. It is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're unique in and of themselves, and yet it's one God. Profound mystery. To be an image bearer of God means that you, we are individuals who were put in a community. We are embedded in a community because that's what we were made to do. And so um, we were put in the community of the human race. And you're put now in the community of Danville, Kentucky, in the community of Grace Church. By nature, to be a human being means to bear the image of God, but also part of that nature is to be communal. And for, imagine the Trinity not caring for the other part of the, of the Trinity, not being communal. We violate the very image we were made in when we don't treat other human beings as fellow human racers, right? Part of the fellow human race. That's important to God. It carries so much weight to Him. Have you ever thought that, in a sense, God just, that going back to who He identifies with, He, he he identifies in a special way with those on the bottom of the totem pole. 
He just does. Those that are at the bottom rung of the ladder. So when you think about like if a society valued the, the family, who did God say he identified with? I'm the father of the fatherless. I identify with the orphans. If a culture valued men, which they did, who did he say? I, I'm a husband to the widow. He identified with the lowly. If your value is nationalism or your citizenship, who did God say he identified with? The sojourner, the immigrant, the alien. Do you see his heart? And that is ultimately who we all are. We're at the bottom of the ladder. We're all at the lowest point of the totem pole because of our sin. And he identifies with us. And so you see the parallel, the spiritual and the physical? It's so important. So how should we respond? Um... In our passages, I think there's a few ways to respond. Notice in the Proverb 14, it says, whoever oppresses. So don't oppress. <laughs> but, but notice down in Proverbs 31, it says, the judge righteously. I think one of the applications for us as his people and for you all the time is for you to think about what, be thoughtful about what is oppressive in our society to identify where are the marginalized, where are the poor, who is the poor. That will be one way to respond because God clearly has given it tons of thought. And he wants us to flourish. Secondly, notice it says to, uh, instead to be generous. The generosity to that. And so the generosity there, most theologians think, as I've studied the commentaries, that it's not just financial. It's a generosity of self and temperament and I mean, gifts and talents and, and finances. It does include that, to be generous to those who don't. So um, here, here's the difference, right? We, we have the mindset as God's people, or particularly Americans, that it's ours and it's our possessions, our monies, in order to share with them. But that's just not the reality, right? Who owns our stuff? God does. Who owns our money? God does. It's not ours. It's not even really yours to share. It's yours to steward and to give. Meaning it's his, sorry, it is, it's his for you to govern and to deal with that. So, um, so, to be generous and to think about what might generosity look like. And I feel like we're doing that as a church in many ways. Um, but, but then also defend. Where do you need to speak up and defend? What do we need to spend, spend up, stand up and speak about and defend those? You see that in the Proverbs 31. But then lastly, the thing that just won't help you, what will not help you, is if you feel, if you feel guilty and heavy this morning about seeing God's heart for, heart for the poor, guilt won't motivate you long. It really won't. Um, it'll make you give a couple of bucks or do a few things to kind of uh, sort of scratch the inch of your conscience. But, but you remember how closely, like when you study 
like if someone just, if, if you nov, in a novice way study the Bible and study giving to the poor and caring for the needy, you could almost conclude, although it's not true, that salvation hinges and is earned by whether or not you give to the poor and to the needy, that you're mindful of them. That's what you conclude. It is that interwoven into it. So it's not. It's not. Salvation is by faith alone, but it, and nor is giving to the poor what saves you. But it is such a part at the heart of God and what he keeps requiring of his people and crying out for that it, um, it's, it's, it's so important and it requires great, great power. Do you, if it's that connected to our salvation, then it takes the gospel salvation realities and all the powers of who we are in the spiritual realm in order to even motivate us to the level, which is not just kind of, hey, put it here and put it in place and let me give us a little bit here and there. No, it's an idea of sacrifice. The gospel leads us to a place of sacrifice. Because what? So notice it's, it's the, the, the fourth way to respond is to respond to the true poor man. You see that in verse, who's the poor man? Jesus was the poor man. He came and he identified himself in this way, right? Did he not, was he not born in a feeding trough? And, was, and when he went to his circumcision, uh, his family went to get it, he was offered, they, remember they offered two doves because they were so poor. The poorest offering when he was circumcised was offered at the temple for him. And he said, the foxes and the holes have birds, have air, uh, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That wasn't, he had no place to sleep eventually when he was there. At the end of his life, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He spent his last uh, evening in a borrowed room. When he, died, when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And his last possessions, his robe, they were on the cross, were stripped of, was stripped of everything. He had nothing. He emptied himself of all of his wealth and became needy and marginalized and poor. Why? so that you and I might have wealth before God. He was the poor man. He says, I so identify with him. When you don't feed them, you don't feed me. But his poorness was so that you and I could be spiritually wealthy. And if you grasp this, the only way, so it goes back to the Proverbs 1-7, right? The awe of God. Like, how will you live justly? It will only flow to the degree that you and I become consumed and remind ourselves and think and hold up the true poor man before us all the time. But the pattern of life for that we would give away our resources to those who need to be resourced. That's how we respond. So may God help us to do that in a way that... Um, Do you see that? The greatest event in history where the God became poor in order to make us wealthy spiritually. That event and what it all accomplished for us is ought to have a direct, huge impact on how we see the poor. They're inseparable for his church and for his people. So I hope you see the heart of our King. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, uh, as we think about mercy and justice, and there's so, so, Lord, there's so many things we wonder, so what? What should we, there's so many, what does it look like in our church? And I'm thankful we're trying to figure that out. And there's many ways it should, and we're mindful of who do we give to and not. But I pray that you would help us just to walk away at the bare minimum today 
see in your heart that you identify and lend. <laughs> when we lend to people, we lend to you. That you so identify and your passion is to identify with the needy. And if we're not getting that, then we don't get the gospel. We may have never experienced the grace, your grace, your saving grace, if we have no, no part of our life that is thinking or moving about the poor. And we're really probably not a true church in many ways unless we, it's a part of what we do as well. So God, may you, um, may we, may you help us to rise above political fights and alignments and worldly solutions that and may you let us be a people who are realigned because you're our father king and we know what your heart's like and so we want to live as your family members should with the same heartbeat with the same desires thank you